Hello, and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by T.K. Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Songs of the People, Paul Robeson and the Negro Spiritual. Remember W.E.B. Du Bois's idea of the talented tenth? Well, never mind about them, because we want to tell you about Paul Robeson, a man who could easily have qualified as one of the talented one millionth. He was a professional football player, studied law at Columbia, starred in Hollywood movies, became both a world-famous singer and an accomplished linguist, and gained notoriety as a leading campaigner for civil rights and socialism. If you've seen the recent movie, One Night in Miami, which imagines what might have been said during a get-together between Malcolm X, Sam Cooke, Muhammad Ali, and Jim Brown, then picture the same gathering of prodigious talent, except that there's only one guy in the room. He received a fitting encomium from the African-American poet Amiri Baraka, formerly known as Leroy Jones, who wrote of him as Paul the artist, Paul the actor, Paul the scholar, Paul the fighter, all combined so that he was the tallest of men. That line echoes a comment sometimes made by African-Americans during Robeson's own life. He was called the tallest tree in our forest. As it happens, both Baraka and Robeson held from the state of New Jersey, where Robeson was born in 1898. His life would be an extraordinary one, yet also one that typified many developments in Afrikaner thought and activism over the first half of the 20th century. Already in 1925, James Weldon Johnson mentions Robeson as an outstanding singer in his pioneering Book of American Negro Spirituals. He performed in New York during this time and attended parties at the home of Carl von Wechten, making him a participant in the cultural flowering that was the Harlem Renaissance. But his star was, at this time, only beginning to rise. By the 1950s, no less an observer than Du Bois was calling him the best-known American on Earth, adding the sadly ironic caveat, only in his native land is he without honor and rights. For all his talents, it was especially Robeson's singing that won him that renown, with his most famous performance perhaps being Old Man River, in the 1936 movie Showboat. You can, if you like, watch it on YouTube. His stage career took him to other countries, notably England, where he had already sung spirituals like Go Down Moses in 1922. It was in London that his political views began to take shape, views that would eventually make him one of the most prominent victims of the anti-communist scare of the 1950s. British leftists, including George Bernard Shaw, introduced him to socialism. Meanwhile, as he would later write in his autobiography, Here I Stand, Robeson met with luminaries of African thought, like Kwame Nkrumah, Jomo Kenyatta, and Ennamdi Azikiwe, so that he for the first time started to see himself too as an African. Study at the School of African and Oriental Studies in London exposed him to African languages and culture, including African music. For Robeson, music and language were intimately connected. One reason for his worldwide popularity was his desire and ability to sing folk music in the local language, pretty much wherever he went. He became fluent in Russian and studied, among other languages, French, German, Spanish, Chinese, Yiddish, Hebrew, Norwegian, Czech, Modern Greek, Latin, Portuguese, and several African languages, including Yoruba, Efik, Chui, and Ga. At first, Robeson tried to keep his artistic career separate from his politics. In 1931, he protested, I'm an artist, I don't understand politics. 
This was a somewhat disingenuous remark since he began to explore socialism already in 1928. But six years later, Robeson was in any case singing a different tune. The artist must take sides. He must elect to fight for freedom or for slavery. I have made my choice. I had no alternative. This quotation, which appears on his gravestone, expresses the core of his philosophy as both a performer and activist. He spoke out boldly in favor of socialist politics and against racism in the United States. Thus, during the Nuremberg trials of the Nazis in 1946, he argued that American involvement was hypocritical, given that the people of America are murdered by the same kind of men that are on trial. He also gave an incendiary speech in Paris, arguing that African Americans should refuse to fight for their country, since it did not offer them basic political rights. Robeson's socialism was inextricably bound up with his opposition to racism in the U.S. He accepted the usual Marxist paradigm that socialism was the final step in a natural evolution, a development, as he put it, of human society from tribalism to feudalism to capitalism to socialism. But he was not the sort of man to justify his political stance on a theoretical level. Instead, he proposed that socialism should be judged on its practical results, and for him, the lack of bigotry in Soviet Russia was proof that the communist system worked. He experienced this firsthand, living with his family for some time in Russia. His son even went to the same school as the son of Joseph Stalin. His relief at the lack of racism there may remind us of Frederick Douglass, who was struck by the openness he found in Britain and Ireland in contrast to the viciously racist United States. Robeson noted this parallel between Douglass and himself. Explaining why he became a celebrated world citizen, yet always returned home, he quoted Douglas, I do not go back to America to sit still, remain quiet, and enjoy ease and comfort. I glory in the conflict, that I may thereafter exult in the victory. In the post-war era, the American government did its best to make him regret this choice. During the Red Scare, Robeson's passport was taken away from him for a decade, cutting him off from paying audiences in Europe, Canada, and elsewhere. He was also summoned to testify before the House Un-American Activities Committee. When a congressman demanded to know why Robeson had not just stayed in Russia, if he liked it so much, Robeson said, My father was a slave, and my people died to build this country, and I am going to stay here and have a part of it just like you, and no fascist-minded people will drive me from it. Is that clear? As reward for his integrity, the Saturday Evening Post called him a Soviet weapon in the war for the minds of the world's colored peoples. He was disowned by the NAACP, and even the heroic Jackie Robinson, who broke down the color line in baseball, spoke against him in front of the House committee. This is a story worth knowing for its own sake, but our main reason for telling it is that Robeson gives us the chance to talk about the interrelation of race and music in this period. As that period's most prominent African-American artist, he constantly confronted this question. Early on, he let his talents be used in films and theatrical productions that presented a cliched or negative image of black people. In 1923, Marcus Garvey denounced Eugene O'Neill's play The Emperor Jones, in which Robeson played the title role, for its representation of the Caribbean. A black columnist, J.A. Rogers, commented frankly that it was written for morons. But as Robeson would later say in his autobiography, he soon came to understand that the Negro artist had a responsibility to his people who rightfully resented the traditional stereotype portrayals of Negroes on stage and screen. 
he sought to use his art in the cause of liberation, for example, by refusing to perform for racially segregated audiences. Decades before the civil rights struggle, he changed the lyrics of his signature song, Old Man River, so that they would have fit perfectly into that struggle. He turned the defeatist lines, I get weary and sick of trying, I'm tired of living and scared of dying, into the defiant, I keep laughing instead of crying, I must keep fighting until I'm dying. And it's easy for us to overlook a more fundamental point about Robeson's career, which is that he was in fact presenting Negro spirituals and other African-American folk music to a wide audience and making it world famous. He was the first person to put on concerts consisting entirely of Black American music, and he was constantly alive to the potential and importance of that music. He presciently observed, for example, that Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Parker would eventually be seen as great composers like Debussy and Stravinsky. He proposed that immersion in the Black folk tradition could be a step towards apprehending something more universal. His autobiography ends with a short theoretical discussion about the fact that the pentatonic scale is used in African-American folk music, in music from Africa itself, from Britain, Eastern Europe, and even Asia. Robeson adds, interested as I am in the universality of mankind, in the fundamental relationship of all peoples to one another, this idea of a universal body of music intrigued me, and I pursued it along many fascinating paths. This should remind us of Alain Locke, who likewise thought that an engagement with particular cultural traditions could lead to appreciation of universal aesthetic values. But it was not so easy to put this elegant theory into concrete practice. From early on, Robeson was torn not just between his political commitments and commercial success, but also between the African-American folk tradition and a more universal repertoire. He wondered, can I be an artist with just Negro songs? But then fretted that improving his singing technique was making his performances less compelling. What audiences, perhaps especially white audiences, wanted from Robeson was a feeling of authenticity. Reviews of his singing praised his naturalness, as in this typically condescending bit of praise from the Manchester Evening News in Britain. One of a race whose natural emotions have been as yet little affected by that cramping and dehumanizing process that we know as civilization. Another review from the same city said that Robeson stands outside art, again meaning this as a compliment. In fact, though, Robeson was presenting his audiences with a carefully, indeed artfully, calibrated version of folk songs. For example, his use of dialect was restrained compared to some other singers of Negro spirituals. One listener who was more attuned to this than the journalists in Manchester was Anna Julia Cooper. Commenting on Robeson's performance of the work song Water Boy, she said that she wasn't sure if it was the real Robeson I heard or the actor impersonating a chain gang Negro. A more general form of this complaint was issued by another leading woman thinker, Zora Neale Hurston. In an essay published in 1934, she distinguished between spirituals and neo-spirituals, the former an authentic folk phenomenon found in real religious services, the latter an artificial construct that was literally arranged for presentation at secular concerts. The neo-spirituals had been gaining in popularity since the 1870s, when the Fisk University Jubilee Singers became the first group to sing spirituals in public. While Hurston accepted the value of such performances, she was adamant that they should not be confused with real spirituals. Those were songs of the people as sung by them, 
and express genuine religious as well as aesthetic feeling. Because they emerged organically from the people, the spirituals did not form a kind of canon or conform to technical, definable standards. Rather, they are being made and forgotten every day, and when they are sung in church, the congregation is bound by no rules. The only thing that all spirituals really have in common is that they are Negro religious songs. So we should not assume that they are always meditations on the suffering caused by oppression. It would be ridiculous, says Hurston, to call them all sorrow songs. This was a barb aimed in the direction of Du Bois, whose masterpiece The Souls of Black Folk ends with a chapter about spirituals entitled, you guessed it, Of the Sorrow Songs. Music is at the front of Du Bois's mind throughout the whole book. Each chapter has a spiritual as part of its epigraph, using the kind of notation you see in sheet music. For Du Bois, the Negro spirituals were the articulate message of the slave to the world, laments that contained within them a more hopeful message, namely that sometime, somewhere, men will judge men by their souls and not by their skins. Subsequently, there had been a further development of the musical form. Just as the slave songs had their roots in African music, so modern spirituals, as you could hear from a singer like Robeson, were an African-American folk form blended with elements taken from European music. Du Bois was not alone in making this observation. Alain Locke said that spirituals have two parent cultures, namely Negro folk music and Protestant Christian hymns. He made this point in an essay about the spirituals, which he included in his anthology, The New Negro, the pivotal document of the Harlem Renaissance. Consistently with his general aesthetic theory, Locke welcomed the idea that spirituals had become a fusion of folk music with extraneous influences. He saw them as a classic folk expression that had been transformed into something new with a more universal appeal. Thus, while it was important to ensure that the original spirituals not be lost to the mists of time, it was equally important to let them develop further. Locke put it like this, while the preservation of the original folk forms is for the moment the most pressing necessity, an inevitable art development awaits them, as in the past it has awaited all other great folk music. Actually, Locke believed that this development had already happened, or at least started to happen. As shown by the rapturous reception received by artists like Robeson, the spirituals were folk art that had achieved a kind of universality. Here it would be worth recalling something else about his theory of value, namely that he counted religious feeling as a universal value that manifests itself in different ways among different groups. So Locke might respond to Hurston and her emphasis on the religious setting of the authentic spiritual, that religiosity remained part of the arranged spiritual, even when performed in the very different context of a New York concert hall. Indeed, that very emotional content would help it appeal to an audience beyond its original creators. The spirituals could thus be not just songs of a people, but songs for all people. The hybrid nature of the spirituals is also discussed in what may be the most famous essay on the topic from the time of the Harlem Renaissance. It appeared as the preface to James Weldon Johnson's aforementioned Book of American Negro Spirituals. Johnson saw the spiritual as a marriage between traditional African music and Christian piety, which offered solace in the face of great suffering. This meant combining rhythm, which for Johnson is the key element of African music, to melody, the signature feature of European music. To show that Negro folk music really does have African origins, he pointed to structural similarities like the call and response pattern that can be found in both Bantu folk songs 
and spirituals like Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. He also defends the authenticity of the spiritual as a genuine cultural production of African Americans. Those who think of them as mere imitations of Protestant church music remind Johnson of people whose elitism makes them doubt Shakespeare's authorship of his plays. He speculates as to whether the spirituals were devised collaboratively by groups of singers or by musically gifted individuals, and decides it was probably a combination, but more the latter than the former. Notice here the parallel to a question we discussed about oral philosophy in African tradition. There too, it has been debated whether creative agency should be ascribed to groups or to wise individual sages. Johnson does not hesitate to call traditional African music primitive and even barbaric, but this does not mean he questions the value of that music or of folk music in general. In the preface to a sequel volume, he says that folk art requires naivete and a sort of intellectual and spiritual isolation on the part of the producing group that makes it indifferent to preconceived standards. This simultaneously echoes Locke's idea that folk art is not yet universal in nature and Hurston's claim that the real African-American music is bound by no rules. Along the same lines, Johnson notes the exceeding difficulty of rendering what he calls the swing of Negro music in formal notation. His respect for the people who produced folk music is also clear from his defense of capturing dialect when writing down lyrics. To use conventional spelling and grammar would, he thinks, be a form of sacrilege. Again, there's an interesting parallel here, in this case to Hurston's use of unconventional spelling to capture the authentic dialogue of the folk who feature in her novels and ethnography. In other novels and poetry of the Harlem Renaissance, we often see music being used to represent Black identity. The work of Claude McKay illustrates this well. He wrote a novel called Banjo, which is also the name and favorite instrument of the main character. The choice of the banjo is meaningful, since it was originally based on an African instrument, and through the 19th century had been played mostly by African Americans until it crossed over into white music. Repudiating the modernist ideal of critics like Locke, McKay thought the aim of Negro art should be a straightforward return to the primitive. Again, we see this usually pejorative word being given a positive value. In another novel called Home to Harlem, he offers a vivid description of music as a vehicle of that return describing a piano player who is lost in his playing as if in some sensual dream, McKay writes that the player has wandered off into some dim, faraway ancestral source of music, like black youth burning naked in the bush, love deep in the heart of the jungle, black lovers of life caught up in their own free native rhythm. What explains the intense and sustained interest shown by authors of the Harlem Renaissance in the topic of spirituals? In part, they simply wanted to understand spirituals as an aesthetic phenomenon. Much as later generations would argue over the relative merits of funk and disco, they noted the contrast between an earthier, arguably more authentic musical style and a more artificial style that obeyed set conventions. If you especially valued authenticity, like Hurston, Johnson, or McKay, you'd be apt to see the crossover appeal of a singer like Robeson as a case of selling out. But if, like Locke, you thought that true modern artists should take distance from the folk traditions that inspired them, then you might see that same appeal as proof of a successful step towards universality. Robeson himself chose to embrace universalism in both his art and his politics, singing folk songs in many languages and outspokenly decrying oppression wherever it arose, regardless of what he called national units. As we've seen, 
he believed that political issues could not be separated from aesthetic ones. Which brings us to another reason for the fascination of spirituals during the Harlem Renaissance. They were a concrete example of much that was being debated in Africana thought at the time. Were diasporic peoples of African heritage, in fact, Africans, who should be looking to the motherland to find their true identity, as Garvey proposed? Or should they take inspiration from African culture, but learn from Western culture, as Locke argued, seeking cultural integration rather than emigration? Leading intellectuals like Du Bois, Locke, Hurston, Robeson, and Johnson were not the only ones to see music as a central occasion for raising such questions. In the 1938 issue of the popular journal Negro History Bulletin, founded by Carter G. Woodson, there's an article by schoolteacher Lillian Duckett. She describes how she got children in Washington, D.C. to consider music as an example of Negro contributions to the world. She provides a list of questions the children themselves suggested, and their questions seem to have been the right ones. How did the spirituals arise? Why are spirituals important today? Why should we appreciate these folk songs? And how much did the music of the past influence the music of today? This episode has been, if you will, the last movement in our symphony of episodes on the Harlem Renaissance, while also giving us a glimpse of later historical developments, as with Robeson's confrontation with political persecution in 1950s America. Soon, we'll move on to consider another artistic and intellectual event that was in part inspired by the Harlem Renaissance, the so-called Negritude movement, led by Aimé Césaire and Léopold Senghor. But first, we want to return to the story of a man whose influence has been a leitmotif over the last episodes, though he has rarely been the main theme. Thanks to his longevity, the career of W.E.B. Du Bois spanned numerous generations of Africana thought, beginning when Booker T. Washington was the leading race activist in America and ending with Du Bois's death in 1963, when that title had passed to Martin Luther King Jr. For quite a bit of the intervening period, the outstanding leader of the race was none other than Du Bois himself. So tune in to hear about his contributions from the 1920s onward, next time on The History of Africana Philosophy. <laughs>